So Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Um, I'm going to run down the poetic... What's it? Yes. You're welcome. Psalm 102, poetic devices. I'm just going to run down the list for sake of time. Verse 2, incline your ear, is uh, basically him asking God to hear him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, verse 2 also, do not hide your face. And then in verses 3 and 4, you have this idea of days consumed in smoke, bone scorched like a hearth, and heart smitten like a grass, like grass. I think he's getting at the physical sensation of grief and affliction and picturing it like a fire that's just ravaged the countryside. Verse 5, where it talks about bones clinging, resembling a pelican, becoming like an owl, like a lonely bird. There's the idea of being alone, particularly in the night. And almost, I think, this picture of gauntness, like a pelican or bones clinging to you, you're, you're wasting away. Okay? Verse 9, where it says, Ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. There's just this constant grief throughout his days. Verse 10, it says, Lifted me up and cast me away. It's, it's like you pick up a rock and you just throw it in the water. right? You're trying to skip a stone. You have no thought of the, the value of it. You just throw it and it's gone. You give it no more thought. And I don't think he's saying that God doesn't care anything at all about him, but he's saying he has that sensation of just being thrown away. Uh, verse 11, like a lengthened shadow or like grass. These are both brief and short-lasting events. Verse 12, where it talks about your name. Your name represents God himself, the name standing for the person. Verse 14, where it talks about those taking pleasure in Zion's stones and having pity on her dust. It is a description of compassion towards God's people as represented by Jerusalem. Verse 15 is similar to verse 12. Fear the name means fear God himself. Verse 16, when it says that God has built up Zion, he means he has sustained or defended his people. Perhaps there is some literal part of the city being built, but I think primarily the focus is on the people themselves. Verse uh, 18, where it talks about those yet to be created, talks about those not yet born. Verse 19, holy height refers to God's exalted position above his creation. Verse 23, when it says, I, you have weakened my strength and shortened my days, he means that God has afflicted him. And uh, when he says, take me away in the midst of my days, he means to die. Verse 25, founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's talking about God as the one who's created all things. In contrast, Men wear out like a garment. Everything does not last in contrast with God himself, whose years do not come to an end. He is eternal. When we consider repeated thoughts, uh, hear me or deliver me, we see a number of times, verse 1, 2, 13, 16, 17, 19, 20, and 24. We find descriptions of affliction in verses 3 through 11 and also verse 20. And then we find this idea that man fades, but God endures in verse 11, 12, 16, 18, 23, and then I believe 24 through 28. What type of psalm do you think we have here? Yeah, I think it's definitely a lament. As far as truths that we see about God, God lasts and God also afflicts. He sees God clearly as the source of his difficulty. And as far as truths about us, we must cry to God we groan as we fade, and yet we find help in God. 
So what I want us to do now is just to walk through the psalm. I can try to send out these notes so you have it for your reference, because I know we went through that very quickly for sake of time. But as we consider this, uh, have you ever had a moment where it feels like all you're doing all day long is grieving? Or where you feel as though you're wasting away in the trial that you're experiencing? That's the situation that the psalmist finds himself in. And I think he gives us uh, three responses, if you will. Plead God's help as you groan. First of all, plead God's help as you groan. We see this in verses 1 through 11. Pray for God's help as you seek God's face in verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face. Incline your ear. Answer me quickly. All of these phrases urging God to respond to him. There has to be a reaching out to God in the midst of the trial. And sometimes, sometimes in the midst of the trial, instead of reaching out to God, we feel as though God has abandoned us, and so we turn and go our own way. We say, well, if it didn't work to follow after God, I'll just give in to temptation and do what feels good and have a little bit of relief from the difficulty. And the psalmist is urging us not to resort to those kind of responses, but instead to turn to God himself with urgency and with pleading with him. Even though you groan, verses 3 through 11, and we should not be shocked that we groan. Romans 8 says all creation groans, and we're part of the all creation. The whole earth is plagued by the curse of sin, death and disease and all of the other things associated with it. Your life is short. Verses 3 and 4, consumed in smoke, scorched like a hearth, spent like grass, and withered away. Under the heavy weight of affliction, we are reminded that life is short. Your appearance is gaunt. I forget to eat my bread. My bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican, an owl, like a lonely bird on a housetop. You're gaunt. You feel alone. Your reputation even is despised, verses 8 through 11. My enemies reproach me all day long. They've used my name as a curse. I've eaten ashes like bread, mingled my drink with weeping. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like grass. He points the reason to this is because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. When we consider the fact that every difficulty in our life comes at the hand of God, that is both a reassuring and a terrifying thought. It is reassuring because if, like Job, we are afflicted having done nothing wrong, then we know that we have a recourse in God, or as we'll get to later in First Peter, we can entrust our soul to a faithful Creator, even as Jesus did as He suffered. If we sin and we experience God's wrath, then it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the fact that God is the source of affliction means the only reasonable response is to plead for God's help, whether that be accompanied by repentance or whether it be accompanied by lament in the sense of, like Job, I don't feel that I deserve this. I know I'm a sinner, but no specific action that I have done has occasioned this difficulty in my life. Even so, God is the one to whom we must go. Plead God's help as you groan. Secondly, remember, God endures and God delivers for His glory. 
We see in verses 12 through 14 that God abides and will deliver in compassion. You abide forever, your name to all generations. God will deliver in compassion. You will arise, have compassion on Zion. It is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. When we consider this, obviously it's addressed to the people of Israel, specifically to the city of Jerusalem, but I think representing the entirety of the nation. And so it's not addressed to you and I as individual New Testament saints living in the United States. And yet the parallel holds true. If God is the one who abides and God is the one who delivers in compassion, and if we plead with him, we can expect a similar result in his time. And that's the important qualifier, in his time. Because verse uh, 13 says, It is time to be gracious, the appointed time has come. God in his plan appoints times in which he shows mercy and times in which he shows judgment. And while there is a mysterious and somewhat incomprehensible relationship between our pleading with God and God's response to our prayers that he has already anticipated and incorporated in what he's going to do, the reality is there are times that are appointed that no matter how fervently we pray, they are still fixed. So what's the point of praying then? Well, put yourself in the shoes of someone who is undergoing the exile in Babylon. God said you're going to be there 70 years. Let's say you go when you're 60. You're not going home. Is it a waste of time to pray? No. Because God is going to keep that promise when he's ready. The fact of you praying, God will answer it, and it will be a more glorious answer for the fact that you never even saw it. Uh, we talked about this from 1 Peter on Sunday. The prophets of old did not see the fulfillment of the things they anticipated, and yet they willingly served those who would come after. So there is a sense in which we pray for some things, knowing we will not see the answer, but our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren or people many generations from now will see the answer to those things, and it is not a waste of time for us to have prayed. Sometimes God graciously shows us the answer in our lifetime. Sometimes it's a long wait. The reality is God has appointed the time, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. Not only does God abide and will He deliver in compassion, but God builds up His people as He hears their prayer. Verse 16 and 17, he's built up Zion and he's appeared in glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. Why? Why does he wait? Why does he do it in one time and not another? Verse 15, so the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of their earth your glory. God does it at the time in which he is appointed so that he receives glory in the answering of the prayer. And as he hears that prayer, he builds up and exalts his people. And then we have this idea that God delivers so that men would fear him. And I started talking about that from verse 15, but we see even, even more clearly in verses 18 through 22. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. God answers prayer at one point so that it's written down for a later generation to read about it and praise God again for what he has done. And then he describes the deliverance. He looked down, he gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoners set free those who are doomed to death. For what purpose? That men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. 
when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Think about what we considered from Isaiah. The people that sat in darkness will see a great light. Isaiah writes that hundreds of years before Jesus comes. And there is a quote of that same passage with regard to the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth in the region of Nazareth, that these tribes that were despised or seen as connected with Gentiles and perhaps lesser in some way had the light of God's deliverance dawning on them, fulfilling a prophecy from hundreds of years before and having opportunity to praise and glorify God. Now that's I don't know if I would say an extreme example, but an example where there's this large span. Sometimes it's not that long. Sometimes it's a later generation. Think about Hezekiah's descendants who are put into exile. They have opportunity to praise God for keeping his word to their father, grandfather, great-grandfather. And for the deliverance, their children and grandchildren see God's deliverance and have reason to praise God for keeping his word with regard to the judgment and keeping his word with regard to sending them home under the ministry of Cyrus the Persian. God receives glory and God delivers people so that men would fear him and he would receive more glory. So the first thing was to plead God's help as you groan, verses 1 through 11, and then remember God endures and God delivers for his glory, verses 12 through 22. And then finally, contemplate how God endures and renews his people. In verses 23 through 28, why does God afflict us? Why does he give us difficulty? He has weakened my strength. He has shortened my days. Why? God shortens your lifespan that you would seek his face. What's the response of the psalmist in verses 24 to 25? I say, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. God endures even though we fade, verses 26 and 27. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. God shortens your lifespan so you would seek his face. God endures even though we fade. And then comes the fulfillment of the expectation. God renews his people, verse 28, so that they are renewed from fading to enduring like himself. Verse 23, they're all appearance from as best you can tell. Your life is about to be cut short. What's the end result of that? You seek God's face. You acknowledge the fact that he lasts and lasts and lasts even as we decline. And in the seeking, the God who lasts even as you fade, often God renews and extends the span of days for people. Not always. Sometimes God says no to earnest, fervent pleas for us to see our lives or the lives of those we love extended. Sometimes God says no, but sometimes he says yes. Epaphroditus and Hezekiah and various others that we see, even someone like Jonah, who clearly doesn't deserve it. He's running away from God in rebellion. And when he cries out for God's deliverance, God saves him, not in a pleasant or way that he would have picked, but God saves him and sends him on his way again to do ministry. Your experience may be like Hezekiah or Epaphroditus who are restored to health for a span of time to continue to serve God. Your experience may be like Jonah in which the book ends and we're still not really sure if he's gotten the point of it, what God has done in his life. 
Your life may be like some of those alluded to in Hebrews 11 who die not having seen the promise, even through great difficulty, torture, persecution, suffering. Or maybe one, some other example that I'm not thinking of at the moment. But the point is, God has the capacity and often uses the difficulties and the trials in our lives to purge from us some great sin or apathy or mediocrity in the way that we're following after Him. We're, we're harboring sin in our hearts. We're not following Him wholeheartedly. We're distracted with the things of this world. God will often use the appearance or the reality of imminent death and suffering and difficulty to purge those things from us so that we will serve Him more faithfully by seeking His face and turning to Him. And in many cases, He then gives us more time to serve Him. So what then should we do with a psalm like this? If we find ourselves in affliction, we should plead earnestly with God even as we groan, suffering is hard. It's not wrong to want relief from it, but we shouldn't rush away from what God is doing through it in our lives. The thing that will sustain us in the midst of it is remembering that God endures and God delivers for His glory. Because what we often pray for is, God, get me out of this because I don't like it so that I can get back to doing the things that I enjoy with no reference for what God wants me to do with my life. If that is your reason, your motivation, your approach in asking God to deliver you from trials, it is not good for your soul if God says yes. But to the extent that our goal in being delivered from trials is to seek God's glory, appealing to His compassion, calling out to Him in prayer, so that we have opportunity that, to bring other people, to encourage them to fear God more, God often says yes to a prayer like that. He has put us in the difficulty so that we would seek Him. He does not change, though it appears that we do, and often really are. And often He shows great mercy in response to such a prayer of humble seeking of His face, pleading fervently for His glory. And so what's the conclusion then from the psalm? Seek God's face when He afflicts you, that you may endure. This psalm does not guarantee that if you cry to God in your affliction that you're going to be healed of your disease, restored to full strength, escape the difficulties of aging, because the reality is God often says no. Paul kept serving God faithfully, but he had the thorn in his flesh, whether that was persecution or demonic oppression or a physical affliction, whatever it was, God didn't take that away, but he said, I'll sustain you through it. Sometimes God gives us something ongoing to keep us on track for Him. Sometimes He gives us a period of great difficulty and then relieves it from us. Sometimes the work that He's doing is not in us, but in someone nearby. Whether the guys that got uh, Jim Elliott and the other three guys, whether they were right or wrong or wise or foolish in what the, the way that they approached interacting with the Indians, God used that in a lot of ways. Whether a guy like Will Borden could have done anything differently is neither here nor there. He gets ready to go to the field and he dies suddenly and it inspires others to go and serve. God has the right to be
be served by our life or by our death. The point of the psalm is to seek God's face when he's afflicted that you may endure, whether that is continued service for him here or enduring until the point that our lives draw to a close that he can use us in the lives of those around us.